The reading for today is 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5, and 12, 1 through 7. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now they came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Andrea. Um, good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. My name is Frank, and this is Tyler. We're both pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. If you're new here, uh, occasionally what we do is we have a conversation about the text rather than somebody just preaching it. We maybe do this five or six times a year, uh, sort of change things up a little bit. I have two more uh, quick announcements, one relating to this idea of dueling pastors on a Sunday morning. Um, First of all, on Wednesday nights, you know, we have a Bible study. We had uh, Marcus Doe here last Wednesday night, and it was fantastic. He was telling his story and talking about We Reconcile. Uh, that podcast now is up on our, on our website. You should go and listen to it. It was absolutely one of the most powerful things I've ever heard. And I just sort of teed him up and let him talk, and it was really good. Um, but normally on Wednesday night, I just teach through certain books of the Bible, but uh, Wednesday nights, October 12th, 19th, and 26th, we're going to have a membership class. And so if you've been wondering when the next membership class was going to be, you wanted to learn more about membership, we're going to be doing that myself and, and Trey Fraley, Tyler James, Nick Oviedo. We're going to be doing that uh, in the middle of October. So mark your calendars for that. We'll give you more details on that. And also it'll be, uh, it'll be on, the, on the website. The other thing is we're gonna, the next time we do Dueling Pastors will be October 23rd. A few of you will know this name. Uh, he's a chaplain in the Air Force now, and he's going to be in town. He was a resident, pastoral resident, for three years at Redemption Arcadia. His name is David Massey. And so, yeah, so that's going to be a really fun day. I told him uh, months ago, I said, the next time you're in town on a Sunday, I'll do whatever it takes for us to be able to have a little time together, actually the whole Sunday uh, together. So, um, so it, we're talking about David and Bathsheba. This is one of those passages that I feel like... Um, uh, even people who aren't really familiar with church have heard something about this. Most people feel like they're familiar with it. Uh, so we decided to do this conversation instead of just preach it. Uh, bring us up to date in David's life and then, and then talk a little bit about why maybe this would be a good thing for us to do this way today. Sure. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about the fact that we're going to get to do this is that we come to this passage thinking that we have a pretty, pretty good grip on what's happening here. And one of the dangers of doing that with scripture um, is that we can come to a passage like this and it takes some of the teeth out of it because we've heard it a bunch of times. Yeah. And so if you've heard this story of David and Bathsheba a bunch of times, some of the like uh, grit of the, of the passage might get past us. We were actually um, thinking about it this week in our household because Charlotte was actually scheduled to read scripture this morning. And so uh, I sent the passage over to Liz, not even thinking to myself about the content, because it's the Bible, right? What could be wrong with the Bible? <laughs> and I sent it over to Liz and, and, and Charlotte, and they're, and they're starting to read at home, and I was at work, and they're, they're reading here, and it gets to about verse 2. And Liz says, 
are you sure this is appropriate for our 11-year-old to read in church? And it's I, not even appropriate for me. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, isn't that how we treat this passage, though? We treat this passage as though it's sort of like we've heard it before, been there, done that. What new can I learn from it? Yeah. But if we look further into depth in this, there's really a lot for, us to te- for it to teach us. Yeah, and it's interesting because last week I felt like there was this sort of island passage where uh, nobody was seeking to kill anybody, and there, weren't, there wasn't a bunch of ugliness going on. And so I had this one passage in this series that we're doing on the Kings where uh, I got to talk about something really fun and great and wonderful, and now we're back to some ugly stuff. And so yeah. we got to try to figure out how to unpack that. David now starts to kind of go off of his walk with God. This is where we start to see him do that. So I'm going to tee it up by reading um, the first, what is it, the first 13, ver- we're going to read all the scripture today. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 11, and then we'll ask a few questions about that. Uh, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, that seems to be a clue in the passage. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a woman, uh, from the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, "Now listen to what he says. I'll come back to this later. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite?" So David sent messengers and took her, and he came, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent uh, and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how was the war going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a Uh, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of of his lord and did not go down to his house. When when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, in in tents essentially. And, And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that David made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Now, verse 1 seems to communicate that David has reached a place of organizational power and maybe complacency, and that helped lead to his sin. Uh, We often seek God and pray when things are challenging, but it seems uh, that the lure of sin can be more powerful when, when, we have, when we feel like we have things in the wheelhouse. You got any comments for that? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it seemed like David didn't have any trouble staying close to the Lord while Saul was trying to pursue him and kill him. Like, so when he was in a dangerous situation, he seemed to seek the Lord, keep his heart aligned with what the, what the Lord was doing. And now that he's uh, sort of in the, uh, the penthouse suite, so to speak, it's actually not as... Not as uh, needed. He, he views it as not as needed to, to tie himself closely with the Lord. And so uh, one of the things that I, that I think about with this um, and the mention of the rooftop and David being up high is that it seems like for us, we think it's much easier to get away with sin the higher up that we are, yes. right? The, yeah, when, we, yeah. when we rise to the that's top floor, point. it's much easier uh, for us to try to get away with sin because we think nobody sees us up here. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what, one of the things going on with David is that now that he's in this comfortable place, he feels like there's, it's possible to get away with stuff. So when we're feeling good about life, when we feel like we've achieved uh, this plateau, this level that we've been aspiring to, we also tend to lose some discipline. Yeah. We become passive rather than active in our resistance of things that we know might be bad for us. Mm-hmm. And, and it just it's kind of that whole I- idea about idle hands and idle minds, I think. 
kind of yeah, kicks yeah, yeah. in. I think that's part of it too. But I do think there's a sense in which David feels like he has some special privilege now with his power that he really doesn't have and shouldn't exercise. Yeah, I think that's so. right. I was thinking about that too with the idleness. And uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 5, he's in that passage, he's actually talking to, to women um, about not being idle. But the, pl- the principle applies for us as well, that's is right. that there's these responsibilities that God has for us when we're walking with him. There's things that he has for us to do. And so the reason the passage starts with um, abdication of responsibility. The reason that it starts with when kings went out to war, David remained home is that we're being drawn to, our attention is being drawn to the fact that there were some things that David was supposed to be spending his time on and that rather than uh, engaging in those things, that idleness set in for him. So verses two through five kind of set the stage. Um, and, and my opinion is that some people have either misunderstood or misapplied these verses. Some argue that uh, Bathsheba was purposely tempting somebody, maybe David, yeah. uh, and that therefore she's somehow complicit. Yeah. Uh, but from what we know about living in the, in, in the Middle East back then is that a lot of people lived their lives on the roof, especially when it was, when it was warm. That was a normal thing. David, uh, the, only, the only description we have is that he saw Bathsheba. He might have seen a number of other people out on the roofs because that was... A normal thing and just because there's a temptation does that does that necessarily indict the tempter I mean can't we say that David is solely responsible for this it's also interesting I think how the one per- he's not even named in scripture and he comes to David and you know you, you got you gotta be careful when you speak truth to power but you hear the implicit nature of what he's saying he's saying isn't that Bathsheba She's the daughter of somebody, and she's the wife of somebody else, the daughter and the wife. In other words, David, don't go there. Please don't go there, and David completely missed that as well. And then finally, I would just say, did Bathsheba even have the option of saying no to David? Because there was a moment when she was sent for, and and what what would have happened if she had said, "Mm, no, not my deal? Yeah. I think there's a lot, a lot there. Uh, one is that it is oftentimes too uh, easy for us to blame the victim in this kind of a situation where we would say, well, surely Bathsheba w- must have been tempting David in some way. And while it is true that there are people out there that will want to tempt you for things, it doesn't appear and there's no evidence for that being the case here with Bathsheba. It seems like she's going about her business and David is using his privilege and he is using his power as a way of exploiting this, this situation. So I don't think that we can blame Bathsheba for tempting David in this place. Now that being said, it's a little more complex than that, right? Because, uh, all of us at some point have agency over the decisions that we make. So it's true, Bathsheba probably was not able to say no to David. He's the king, he, he gets what he wants. By this time, and this is something that we oftentimes forget, by this time, David actually already has multiple wives and partners. So it's not, it's not as though he's a, a one-woman man here and then he's just now stepping out of that relationship. Uh, but David are, is already... Um, Which, by the way, doesn't make it right, but anyway. That, that's right. Uh, what, it, what it makes it is that he's actually already exploiting his power right. for his own, his own purposes. Uh, so with Bathsheba, I think the most that can be said about her is that at some point she has agency over what decisions she's going to make in her life. Now, this is a really complex question for each of us and certainly not something that we can pin on Bathsheba. But I think the question becomes, when are we called by God to actually say no to something that could be sinful, even though it might cost us as much as our life? That's a real question in this situation. And I certainly don't blame Bathsheba for the course that she takes. The power certainly lies with David. Yeah, so, I mean, he goes out and kills uh, her husband. So there's an indication there that he he would be willing to also execute her for not following through on this. A lot of people also say, um, and I wanted to mention this, a lot of people have this sort of uh, switch that gets flipped here. They say, oh, David has become Saul now. Um, Yeah, in part, he's off the, the path of God. But one of the things that's different about David than Saul that we should try to remember is that when David is confronted with his sin, not only this sin, but other sin, he tends to confess it and repent of it pretty quickly. 
Unlike Saul, who all he did was try to justify. He would go into rationalization, justification, and maybe at the end he would sort of say, yeah, well, okay, I guess I am guilty, but not really necessarily mean it. Mm -hmm. So there is a difference there, but clearly David is getting complacent here, and, and it's a problem. So David now has a plan. Uh, his plan is, uh, well, I'm going to send for Uriah and get him and, and Bathsheba to sleep together. That'll take care of it. Isn't it funny how when our sin gets us into trouble, uh, it seems as though our first flinch is to seek our own creative thinking and clever center. I have a clever center that I'm sure is better than just about anybody else's. We seek that first rather than maybe going to God or actually confessing our sin or, or about that. So talk a little bit about that, the, just the progression of what happens. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, one more quick note on the, hey, isn't that... Uh, the daughter of this person, and isn't that the wife yeah. of this person? Um, I, I was leading a men's Bible study in Southern California a number of years ago, and uh, pretty consistently we were talking about this kind of thing, like what, how can guys view women in a way that would be biblically faithful and spirit-led? And um, one, of, one of the days I actually said to myself, uh, I said to the guys, I said, can't we think of this as if we are all one body of Christ? Can't we think of every woman that we come into contact with as a wife or a sister or a daughter? Yeah. And if we, were to, if we were to view it this way, wouldn't that change completely how we as men yeah. view women? Uh, and, one, and one of the guys just said, oh, no, absolutely not. I could never do that. I, oh, I could never do that. Why? I said, why? And he goes, well, well, that would change completely how I viewed women. And I, and, 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 and I, I said, yeah, yeah, it would, it would. It was amazing, though, over the course of a, of a few weeks as we were continuing to talk about this stuff, he came back later and he said, you know, that really does change how we view, uh, yeah. view, view women. Uh, so one of the things that I think is being pointed out here in saying that. So be, just yeah, yeah. in other words, transformation is kind of important. That's right. That's okay. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, uh, all right. And that yeah. renewing our mind. to clear that up. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It happens. All right. So, so I actually think in this particular case, why that's being pointed out here is so that we, we, we might view the whole situation differently from the beginning. Uh, David is being confronted with a mindset that is broken and sinful. And if David were to change his mindset, it's why the passage uh, in Romans 12 says, by the renewing of our mind. Because if our mind is renewed, then all of our actions and behaviors follow that. And I think that that's what's being confronted here. So the progression, you so asked about the progression. He has a plan and there's a progression. He has a script. He has a script about what yeah. he's going to do to cover up his sin, right? Yeah. Something that I think is fascinating about this, and we do this all the time, where, we, where we've made a mistake and we try to cover it up. We try to find a way to, to, to think our way out of it. Uh, one of the things that is fascinating about this is that David assumes that it, as he continues to cover this up, that he can wipe it away clean. But that, that's never how that goes. When we, when we do this kind of thing where we're trying to cover up for a past mistake, it escalates the situation uh, completely. I was thinking about this the other day, too, is that we, we often think uh, reduce our sin to sort of just, uh, it's just this, and, and it's just a small thing. I can manage this. I can deal with this. I can put this away in a closet where nobody will see this, and, and I can control this. But, but sin, of course, doesn't work like that, and we will be found out for it. Uh, we, we, in other words, we aren't able to control sin the way that we think that we are. And rather, uh, if we're just sort of drifting through, expecting for these things to go away, uh, we don't drift towards holiness. Uh, when we're drifting in this life, we drift uh, away from, ho from holiness, and we, yeah. we drift towards our sin. Uh, it's like uh, one of my favorite things in the world is the lazy river. You guys know the lazy river? Where you can just go sit in an inner tube and you can just float around the lazy river for hours if you want, right? And you keep thinking to yourself, oh, I'll get off the next time. I'll just get off the <laughs> next time. And you go for one more lap. I'll get off the next time. Well, that thinking is part of what's going on here for David. I can get out of this next time, and then you're another lap around. I can get out of this next time, you're another lap around. The truth is, is that we don't drift towards holiness. No. If, we're, if we're on the lazy river, we're at some point going to have to actually swim over to the exit so that we can get off. That's why we have disciplines, because yeah, right. we can't drift, uh, like you said, towards holiness. We yeah. have to discipline ourselves to be able to go that way. 
We also uh, often will get into a position where we begin to tell ourselves and rationalize ourselves, and I'm sure David was there. He's the king of God's people, yeah. and he's thinking, I can't let anybody uh, hear about this because I'm doing such important work for God, yeah, for yeah. the kingdom. So I have to try to cover this up. That's another thing. And then one of my favorite parts of his plan is, again, you have to, you have to be able to read these texts with uh, the, the text behind the text in mind. When he says to Uriah, go down to your home and wash your feet, that's actually a double entendre. That means, yeah, you need to clean up your feet, but it also means you need to lay with your wife. You should mm -hmm. go and lay with your wife. So he's, in a sense, instructing Uriah, go home and, and, and enjoy a night with your, with your wife. But, but uh, Uriah says no. And verse 11 and, and the surrounding verses, isn't it interesting when, when David says, why didn't you go, why did you sleep at the door? Why didn't you go down there? Uriah says, how could I do this when the ark and when Joab and all my countrymen, how could I do this when all these people are out there? I would never do, I, here's what he's saying without, Uriah doesn't know he's saying this, but here's what he's saying to David. I would never do what you just did. That's, I mean, that's a pretty strong indictment, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, one of the things that's fascinating about that to me is that David has several chances in this passage to take the off-ramp. He has several chances in this passage. People that will come to him and say, well, certainly you can't do that. That's somebody's wife. Now, I would never do that. Why are you doing that? Uh, David has opportunity after opportunity to actually get off this lazy river and take an off-ramp. Um, it's, it's that passage uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, it says, uh, I, this is one of those moments where I just can't help but have music in my mind because of the, the song has been, the verse has been instilled in my mind. And it goes, no temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. It's this beautiful passage that talks about God's faithfulness that when we're tempted, that he will, by his spirit, offer us a way of escape so that we can stand up underneath this temptation and flee. And I'm fascinated by the fact that David had several options to, to do this, and he, and he didn't take any never of them. Saw that as an never saw that as an option. Uh, let me just state the obvious, too. It's, it's really better when you sing during a sermon than when I do. <laughs> um, so David has a new plan, and he, and he tries liquor, but not for himself. <laughs> he tries liquor on, on uh, Uriah. Let me read the rest of this chapter and ask you a few more questions about this no. chapter before we get to uh, Nathan and his parable. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Just no ceremony there. Mm -hmm. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, because they lost the battle, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to, to fight? Did you not know that they would <clears throat> shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Mm. Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So he's mollifying David in that moment. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. 
Then the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She, uh, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So hmm. um, David, here's David's no, new plan. I've mentioned this before. The irony here is that Saul tried to do this with David, and David succeeded and lived through it. And apparently David went to school on this plan because now he's using it on, on Uriah, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, and, uh, I know you want to get in there. Just Verse 25, though, kind of fits in with this. Yep. Verse 25 just sounds really callous to me. Ah, Joab, don't worry about Uriah. You know, the sword kills one, sword kills another, whatever. Go Be encouraged. Okay, so talk a little bit about his callous disregard for Uriah's death. Yeah, I thought two things here. One is that story, uh, we get into trouble when we say to ourselves, if we're caught, what will we say? And, and that's sort of a way of planning for failure. Yeah. When, when we think, if, if we're caught in this thing, what will our story be? And they're getting their minds together on what this story will be. I think sometimes uh, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we consistently are thinking about that moment uh, when, when, when there's behavior that we are engaged in that we know is something that we shouldn't do, but we're persisting in it anyway, we're thinking about that moment where, what if I get caught with this? Now, there's two things happening there. One is it's self-preservation because we're trying to think, what lie can I tell that's going to allow me to keep getting away? But at the very same time, it's that we want to get caught. The other, the other side of that is also true, that we want to get caught so that we can break the cycle. Right. And that's, there's some fascinating psychology there. Yeah. Uh, with the, Uriah, with the Uriah, Uriah question about just sort of being passive, um, don't worry, the sword devours this person and that person. It, it comes to all of us. There's a sense also where David here, knowing that he had put Uriah in this place, is attempting now to distance himself from it. Yeah. And in the minds of those that are listening, to give an alternate uh, reaction for why that happened, an alternate explanation for why that David's happened. David's become a politician, essentially, <laughs> here. Yeah, know. and, and uh, a Not good to one. throw politicians under the bus. We like, we like politicians. Yeah, we do, yes. At Redemption yeah, Arcadia. Okay. Yes. Okay, awkward moment in the midst of this. Okay, so look at verse 27. <laughs> Uh, more awkwardness coming. <laughs> That's right. Who, who, who are you looking at? Uh, I, have, I have many friends in this congregation that are politicians. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's become a man of sin. How's that? Does that fix it? Okay, like us yeah. all. All right. So um, look at verse 27. Given that right now, not many people, if any, know about the sin that is the backstory of what happened to Uriah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What David is doing with Bathsheba is actually a noble thing. That's right. Something that where it, it, it looks as though he's coming and protecting and providing for and sacrificing for and preserving yeah. Bathsheba. So what's going on there? Yeah, I think that's right. In the culture, if there was a widow, uh, it actually was a noble thing for a relative or a close friend of the, the husband who had died to then take the woman in as a, as a wife so that uh, she would be cared for, protected, and all of that. And so David is now presenting this as something noble that he's done. Uh, and were it not for the murder and cover-up, uh, that, that would have been the case. Uh, but I'm fascinated by this because there are often times for us that we do this too, where uh, we, we, we say, don't look, don't look underneath the surface as what's happening here. Just look at the thing that I'm doing so I can present it to you all as something that's noble. And there are times that we need to be called, on that, called out on that as yeah. well. Yeah, sure. And, and, and he's going to get called out now. Yeah. But in a very interesting way, let me read now the first half of chapter 12, and that'll be the last uh, of the scripture reading that we'll do. Uh, interesting. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. We don't know a lot about Nathan. It's interesting how so many prophets in the Old Testament, we get all this background. Nathan just appears, says something really important, and then he fades away. Yeah. And he does so again here. And Nathan came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up. And, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of, the, out of, the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them over to your neighbor and he shall, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Wow. Um, like I said, it's interesting how little we know about Nathan. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about Nathan's methodology. Uh, Jesus is known for telling parables. Depending on how you count, uh, what kind of rhetoric you, you understand, there are between 30 and 36 parables in the New Testament that Jesus uh, tells. Um, and, and we all know about those parables. But again, depending on how you count, there are actually 8 to 10 parables told in the Old Testament. A parable is a worldly story or an illustration or a lesson that teaches a spiritual truth by using a worldly situation. Mm -hmm. And so like I said, there's eight or 10 in the Old Testament, and I think that the, the most popular, not the most, but the, the most renowned parable that's told in the Old Testament is actually this parable that, that uh, Nathan tells him. Um, it, it, I call it the you to man parable, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, why is this parable so effective? That's uh, parables in general, one of the things that is helpful for them is that it's using terminology that we're familiar with, things that we can relate to. And so, uh, it, like earlier in, in, this, in the message today, we, in our conversation, talked about the, uh, the lazy river. That's a parable. That's a, that's a way of thinking about it. There was a man who went on a lazy river, and he talked about getting off, and he didn't. He didn't get off the off-ramp, and instead he kept going around and around and around. It's a parable. And it helps us to relate to something that we understand uh, that we can be thinking through. A second thing that it does is that it actually divides uh, those who have ears to hear and those who don't have ears to hear. So one of the reasons that Jesus is telling parables is because there are people in his, his audience that are going to receive a message, and there are people in his audience that are not going to. And he's, he's telling it in parables so that the message would be received by the people who would, would, would have ears to hear. And I really like that as well. So what, what Nathan does with David here is that he gives David the opportunity to have ears to hear. It's another off-ramp. Yeah. It's another way for David to be able to receive the message. And it's actually a kinder way to do this. Uh, in God and his kindness, uh, Romans 2 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's actually a kinder thing to allow David to come to the conclusion himself that he has committed sin rather than just levying an accusation. And so I appreciate this methodology from Nathan because it's, it's, it's effective for the people who have ears to hear and it's kind to David in his sin. And just one more note that I'll make about that is that uh, chapter 11 had all of these uh, references to David sending this person there and, and David sending this person there and so David's pulling all the strings and he's orchestrating all these things. The reason chapter 12 starts with, and the Lord sent Nathan, is because it gives, uh, it pays attention to the fact that God is actually the one who is sovereign in all of this, and God is doing his own sending. You know, and it's interesting, six or seven hundred years later, the Greek philosopher Aristotle taught that um, 
you are more persuasive and it's more powerful and more effective if you can draw your audience in and let them arrive at the conclusion that you could just tell them, yeah. but you set it up for them to arrive at that uh, conclusion. He yeah. calls it an enthymeme. And that's essentially what Nathan is doing here. It's more powerful in David's mind. He, he feels the weight of his sin because he's the one who comes to the conclusion that he's the guy that, yeah. uh, that did this. Because he had, to, he had to come to that conclusion in order to uh, provide justice for this, this story that he's talking about. Yeah, two other thoughts on the, on the parable itself. One is that initially David doesn't feel the weight of it uh, because he's still so caught up in his mentality that he can't see the truth of it initially. It's that age-old thing that, that you've said to us many times, which is that uh, we want justice for other people. We want grace and mercy for yeah. us. And so David hears this story, and he wants justice. In fact, it, he, the, the language there is that David gets really angry here. He, he didn't get angry at some of the other things, Uriah's death and et cetera. He gets angry here. Yeah. Uh, his passivity is, is, uh, is for the moment, uh, left behind because he's angry about the justice for this other person. Of course, he wants grace and mercy for, for himself. One last comment on the parable itself. Uh, the reference to the lamb having become like a daughter to the owner again, throws back to that language about the daughter and the wife, that, yeah. that, that people are to be treated with this kind of respect. So one of the things that's interesting after uh, it, it, it appears as though David's beginning to understand that he is the man, <laughs> is Nathan then says, look, God wants to know after all he's done for you. Yeah. I anointed you king. I gave you Israel. I gave you Saul's wives. I don't even know what to make of that. Yeah. Um, I gave you all of this stuff. And if you had asked, I would have done even more. Right. So why did you go and do this? What, what do you make of that? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I wanted to say that when that phrase, you are the man, that's something that we want to hear from anybody except for Nathan. Nathan's the only person that we don't want to hear that from. <laughs> it's, it's not as cool <laughs> when Nathan says it. Um, uh, yeah, second, second <laughs> we just had to include that. Secondly... Um, I think that there's a, a reference there that God has given uh, to David everything that he needs, right? And there's a scriptural precedent there as well that God has given us everything that we need for this life of godliness. Um, but we're, we're tempted consistently to think that God is holding out on us, and that goes back to the Garden of Eden uh, with eat of all these fruit, but don't eat of that fruit from that tree. Uh, we have everything we need over here, but we think God's holding out on us yeah. over there. And so even with all of the things that God has given to David, David still thinks it's not enough. And so that cycle here where David sees Bathsheba, Bathsheba becomes to him something that he wants, that he doesn't have. He then thinks that he needs that thing. And in fact, he thinks he's owed that thing. He thinks he deserves it. He thinks he deserves yeah. it. And so he moves from, I see the thing that I want, to I think that I'm owed this or I deserve it, to I'm going to try to get it, to I'll do anything to have it. And then even when I have it, I'm going to keep on doing things to cover up the fact that that cycle even exists. Yeah. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's a cycle that exists for us also. We see that thing that we don't have. We think that we are owed it or we're, we deserve it, right? Treat yourself. <laughs> we think that we deserve it. And so we'll do anything that we'll do to take it. And then we'll cover up that cycle because then once we have it, we feel like we have, we have somehow uh, need to cover the fact that we went and got it that way. Yeah, a couple things there. You, you made that Parks and Rec <laughs> reference, but uh, I see this just watching TV when Jackie lets me watch shows that have commercials. She hates commercials, but um, when I watch commercials, one of the big narratives now in, in advertising is the, the people advertising the product, the companies advertising, they say this, you deserve this. You must have this because you are worthy of it. You deserve it. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, how do they know I deserve it? Hmm. What have I done to deserve this product? And by the way, I'm going to have to pay for it as well. This, this sounds like a merit-based salvation, not a grace-based salvation. Yeah. I will tell you that right now. But it's like, how do these companies know that I deserve it? Maybe I'm a louse and I don't deserve it. Maybe I'm a rat fink. Yeah, you know, I maybe I don't deserve anything. <laughs> it's possible. And then here's the other thing. 
I pound away on this, and I know I pound away on this, partly because I've experienced it, and partly because I've seen so many other people talk about it and experience it as well. Um, this idea that once you achieve what you think is going to make you fulfilled, then you begin to realize, I'm not fulfilled. Mm. And, and you begin to look for that next worldly thing, and you keep forgetting that it's Christ who fulfills. Mm. This is one of my favorite stories of that. I'm old enough to remember when the Super Bowl started, and, and, and the Dallas Cowboys were a pretty good football team, and everybody kept thinking they were going to win the Super Bowl, and they kept getting beat by the Green Bay Packers, and then this other thing would happen, and that other thing would happen, and finally... Super Bowl six, they make it to the Super Bowl. They lost Super Bowl five in a complete fluke. They make it to Super Bowl six, okay? And they win Super Bowl six. And there's a story of Cliff Harris and Charlie Waters, two Hall of Fame defensive backs, sitting in the locker room after the game. The champagne is going confetti, you know, they're celebrating and everything. And they're just sitting in front of their lockers and they look at each other. And one of them, I, don't, I can't remember who it is, but one of them looks at the others, the other one and says, who do we play next? <laughs> and it was his way of saying, I thought this was going to fulfill me in a way that, that it hasn't fulfilled me. Mm. You know, we just have to come back and keep doing the job. There's nothing in this world that's going to fulfill us mm. the way that we think we are. And David is, is there. But also, um, verses 11 and 12, uh, God says what we do in darkness, he's going to bring to light. Mm-hmm. Yikes. And he does this to David, so talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I think there's a sense where we uh, expect to be able to not harm anyone with, with any given sin that we might engage with. Well, this is just a private matter. This is just something that I will, I will have to deal with. And so we have this, this thought that um, as long, that's between you and whatever happens between closed doors. Um, but... There's a, there's a clear indication here from Scripture that sin, that sin doesn't work that way. That one, we won't be able to keep anything uh, hidden. We won't be able to, to keep anything undisclosed from the Lord. And two, that our sin has consequences beyond just us. Uh, that there's consequences that, that, that face all of those that are around us. And so the things that, that I do, uh, whether... Uh, no, noble or ignoble will affect my family, will affect, yeah. affect my neighbors, will affect my church, will affect the people that I care about. And uh, we have to understand that that, that that is the case for each of us, that there's nothing that we can do that's actually just removed from, from God, number one, or others around us, number two. And in this passage, we also hear that God is displeased with David, and then we hear that the sword will never leave his house. Mm-hmm. Now, that's like a curse, isn't it? So. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think also that there is uh, an indication here where though the, cons- though the sin has been forgiven, uh, in verse 13, God's going to say uh, through, Nathan, through Nathan here, I, um, David says, I sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And then that next word is nevertheless. When I read this passage for the first time through, that word nevertheless just jumped out at me because I thought... God has forgiven the sin of David, but there's still consequences. Right. There are, there's still a price to be paid. And oftentimes we, we don't want to see forgiveness of sin that way. We, we, we think that in forgiveness of sin, God should make all of the consequences go away all as well. All the worldly horizontal consequences go away. Right? That's right. That's right. But the reality is, is that with our sin, there come consequences, even though God has forgiven that. Uh, One of the ways that I've heard people say this is that God has delivered us from the penalty of the sin in his death on the cross. Um, But there is still power and presence of the sin in the world. And so those things ultimately won't be eradicated until uh, the kingdom that we have with God eternal. And so the consequence of this sin, um, of any sin, uh, can be the consequence directly of our personal sin, but also the consequence of just living in a fallen sinful world. Yeah. Both of those powers are at work in this world, yeah. and we have to suffer through those. That's part of what the New Testament talks about, tribulation and suffering and challenges. But, but in this case, it was pretty rough, so just talk a little bit about that. 
Well, yeah, this, this last verse that we just read about the child shall die is really one of the most difficult parts of the, these passages, that how do we, how do we trust the, in a loving God who allows for this child then to die? Because the child, it was no fault of the child of David and Bathsheba. Right. The child just was born as a result of the sin uh, of, that was going on. And so uh, one of the things that, that I, I've thought through with this is that uh, several commentators point to this child as being a kind of Christ figure. If you think about it, this child uh, bore the wrath of sin or bore the consequences of sin, though this child was innocent. And in that way, that's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and was innocent of any sin, but bore the wrath of sin, the wrath of God, because of the sin of the world. This child and the death of the child actually point forward to Jesus, who would do the same thing to us uh, for us on the cross. And now, uh, it's not that David and Bathsheba don't have another child. They have another child, and his name is? Yeah, Solomon. Right, so this is also the fascinating thing is that in, in the midst of the first child passing away, this second child comes, Solomon. So David goes to Bathsheba and comforts Bathsheba on the loss of the first child. And Solomon is conceived at that point, who will be the next king of Israel, uh, ultimately, or, the, or the, 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 the heir to the throne. So it's almost this tale of two ch children at the end, where one passes away as a, as a foreshadowing of Christ. And then Solomon actually becomes a foreshadowing of Christ in another way as well, with the building of the temple and, and, and in, his, in his reign. Uh, and offering sacrifices of, for the, on behalf of the people before the Lord. Both of these children are actually types of Christ going into the future from here. And one, at one point in 1 Kings 1, uh, they're, they're looking, after all the mess with Absalom and all of that, um, they're looking towards who will be king next. And Bathsheba in 1 Kings 1 actually comes to David and says, remember, you promised me that my child would be the, the, the heir to the throne. And so then we have Solomon and the reign of Solomon. Yeah, David was going to renege on that promise until Bathsheba that's uh, right. reminds him. And then that's when we head into Solomon's story in a few weeks. Yeah, that's right. But next week we've got Absalom and, and the prophetic words that, that Nathan speaks here actually come to light in this whole six-chapter narrative with Absalom. Yeah, that's so, right. That's what we get to look at next week. Yeah, one last thing here is, is, is that uh, the generational curse that we've now mentioned on the house of David is something that uh, biblically and theologically we see on families as well, that yes. there's a passing down of the effects of sin from one generation to the next. And so something, again, for us to be considering in all of this is that though Christ uh, has set us free from the penalty of sin, uh, we, we actually want to be aware of the power and presence going forward in our lives that we might break some of these cycles yeah. going into future generations. So we can rest assured in the hope that we have in Christ's ability to put away our sin. We aren't going to be able to do that on our own. Um, Christ is the only one that will be able to put that away for us, cover and atone for that sin that we have in our lives. And if you haven't experienced that forgiveness of sin, we'd love for you to do that today. Uh, with us. You can come and pray. There'll be people uh, when we take communion in a few minutes that we'd love for you to come pray with to receive that salvation. But a second thing for the rest of us is that those of us who are still fiddling around with the power and the presence of sin, one of the reminders of this passage for us is that we aren't, we, that's not something we should be messing with, and it will ultimately come to light. And we can actually take the off-ramps that God provides for us in, in, in our uh, opportunities to flee from sin. Uh, James says it this way, if, uh, if you flee from, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Yeah. So with that, let's um, move into our time of reflection and, and um, uh, response. We're going to sing two more songs together. We need our communion servers to come forward and uh, deacons and elders, if you want to come forward and be in the wings, uh, ready to pray with people. Uh, you can do that. And so we talk about uh, this every single week. We talk about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. And Jesus talked about it um, uh, the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. It's been given for you. It has been for us. And then later he takes a cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And it's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. So... Um, 
uh, Paul says that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So if you are somebody who has come to Christ in repentance and faith, you would call him uh, your Lord and Savior. Um, it, this is a time during this first song uh, that you would step out in the aisle, come down and, and take the elements. Um, we, we have uh, the, the gluten-free ones, we have uh, the wine, we have the grape juice, anyway uh, you want to take it. But as you come, remember it's a confession of our need, but it's also a celebration that that need has been met through Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and do that now. Do you want to pray for us sure. as we go into communion? Yeah. God, we, uh, we confess to you that uh, we are broken, we are sinful, God, that though you have taken away the penalty of our sin, that too often times we mess around with still the power and presence of sin. God, and as a result, there are consequences. This world is not right. Lord, uh, thinking about that child in the passage that, that had passed away, that's not right. And there are many things in this world, God, that we can point to that are not right. But we praise you that you have made a way of salvation for us in the midst of all of that. And we do look forward to one day, God, dwelling with you for all eternity. So we pray, Lord, that you would take these elements, these communion elements, and that you would use these ordinary, natural or, uh, elements for your supernatural purposes, God. That the bread and the cup, symbols of your body and your bread, uh, would be ministered to us, Lord, as a reminder of the fact that you have atoned for our sin and that you invite us to walk into new life. And we pray, God, that you would bless this congregation as we take this. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you all for joining together this morning to worship, to learn from God's word. Know that we as a staff and pastors and elders, we're praying for you this week. That whatever God is doing in your heart this morning would continue to bear fruit in your lives. Let me read this from number six as a blessing on our way out. That the Lord would bless you and keep you. That the Lord would make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord would lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Go in that peace, church. Go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.